You'll be able to follow uh, with me today if you've got your Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter 23, the passage that was just read, or your devices open there. Uh, you will be going through uh, beginning of verse 7, so, so have that there. If you're like me, you need um, a refresher, you need a reminder of, of what's been going on in these latter chapters of 1 Samuel. And David is on the run. He is a fugitive, even though he has committed no crime. He is uh, wrongly accused and tracked down by Saul, who is the king of Israel. He's the king in the functional sense. He's the king in the sense who has all the authority and power. But the reader knows that, that David has been anointed as the next king. But Saul is unwilling to let go, and he is excessively attached to this power, to this popularity, and his functional God is remaining in power and remaining king, and he is willing to do anything, anything to hold on to that power. And primarily what he's doing is seeking after David uh, to kill him, to take him out, but he's even willing to take out his own son, Jonathan. Uh, Lord Acton has written, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this is the situation that we have in these latter chapters of 1 Samuel. Uh, Saul has harnessed all the powers, if you will, of the, uh, the CIA. Uh, he's got Dog the Edomite, his spy. He's got the NSA technology going. He has all the power of the military. And imagine if you're in David's situation, that, that the, this authority, all of this is, is, is coming after you. And as we move through today's chapter, if this were a movie, chapter 23, a movie with commercials, uh, we, would, we would have this, this movement and this crescendo because Saul has been uh, failing at, at tracking David down and getting near him. But in chapter 23, he gets good intel, and he gets logistics, and, and he comes right upon him. And so this would be, if it were a film, the commercial breaks, and like, okay, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen here as they go to commercial breaks? That's what we're going to see here in chapter 23. And I have six truths for us coming out of the text, and let's get right into it. Let's begin looking at verses 7 and 8 of 1 Samuel 23. It says, Saul was told that David had gone to Calah. Uh, here's his intelligence. So he, he, he's got the report of where he is. And Saul says this, God has handed him over to me, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. Or another way to translate that would be, he's entered a town with two doors and a bar. Uh, paraphrasing here, there is only one way in and one way out. This is a great town for security if you're inside and the doors are locked. But this is a terrible place to be if someone who is seeking you out comes to find you in it because there is no escape. This is what the text is telling us in verse 7. So Saul has gotten this intel. Back to the text, verse 8. And Saul called up his forces for battle to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. 
A couple things I want us to observe here just in verses uh, 7 and 8. One is that Saul is professing faith in God. Do you see that? Do you see how he interprets the events here? God has handed him over to me, Saul is saying. Saul is looking at what is going on, and he's gotten the intel of where David is. And he interprets that as though God's blessing is upon Saul, and God has delivered David into his hands. Uh, So the, the first point, first of six truths I want us to see today, is that God's providence may be completely misread. And David has completely misread the providence of God here. I'm sorry, Saul. Say, help him, Lord. Saul has completely misread the providence of God. And if we are reading the scriptures with, um, with our, our Pharisee glasses on, we had an elder here, uh, many of you might remember Wayne Kuntz, and he would say, we are all recovering Pharisees. And if we read this text with our Pharisaical glasses, which we should not do, we would read this text and say, hey, I'm nothing like Saul here. (laughs) I'm nothing like him. But when we read the Bible, what we actually want to do is not just get the facts and the observations. We want to do that, but we need God's grace to come into my life and into your life out of this text. And so one of the ways we should read verses 7 and 8 is that I might completely misread the providence of God what is going on in in life externally to me, and and I could misinterpret that as though God has done this for this reason. He's blessed me or he's kept me, and, and that's the furthest thing from the truth. What I'm trying to say is we can be more like Saul than we may think. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, he, Saul, impiously connects God with his cause. He wrongly interprets the events of what's going on and what is about to happen. We sometimes describe this as reading the tea leaves. Are you familiar with that, that phrase? Uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's an expression that means to predict future events by interpreting small or insignificant signs or clues. The phrase comes from the practice of reading the, pattern, the patterns made by the tea leaves at the bottom of a cup after they have been consumed. Today, the phrase is often used more generally to refer to any attempt to predict future events by interpreting signs or clues regardless of their origin. So what we have here is Saul reading the tea leaves, as it, as it were, and he has read them completely wrong. He has himself at the center of his life, and, and he's professing faith in God and recognizing God's sovereignty, but he's, he's completely misread what is going on. God's providence may be completely misread by you or by me or by others. Another example of this is Job's friend. Um, he, he had some friends who were, were not very helpful to him, Job. Many of you are familiar with his friends. Uh, Eliphaz, he, he says this to Job, this is his, his, his reading of the tea leaves, if you will. Is not your wickedness great? 
Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your brothers for no reason. You stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked. These are very strong words to paraphrase what Job's friend is saying to him here. He's saying the reason that your seven sons and three daughters have died and all of this tragedy has come your way is, is because of, of, of the wealth that you've hoarded. You have stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked. He's using very strong language to try to explain why Job is in the situation he's in. He goes on, this friend, he says, you gave no water to the weary and you withheld food from the hungry, though you were a powerful man owning land and an honored man living on it. And you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. He is interpreting the events that are going on and saying, here's what's happened. That is why, Job, snares are all around you. Why sudden peril terrifies you. Why it is so dark you cannot see and why a flood of water covers you. He has misread the providence of God. This is something you and I need to be careful of. It is something that may be revealing that we ourselves are putting ourselves at the very center of God's universe and, and, and we are not at the center. And so does God work providentially in your life and in my life? He does. But let's be very humble and cautious about how we interpret those events. Well, let's continue on in the text. And uh, one of the, the lessons we might take away from this is we need good friends like David and Jonathan, the relationship they have, to help us understand events that are going on in our lives. And we're trying to discern, is, is God trying to, to direct me here or communicate this? We need good and wise friends who can help us to see beyond ourselves. That's verses 7 and 8. Let's come back to the text and look at Verses 9 through 12. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod. David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Calah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Calah surrender, surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Just one word in the Hebrew text. He's saying, yes, Saul is coming. He's coming to Calah. Notice that David has called the one remaining peace, priest. Uh, again, a little review here. Uh, Saul, through his forces, has taken out the priesthood, who at that time was set up not in Jerusalem, but in Nob. They have been taken out except for this one. And he calls him. Uh, to, to pray and to seek the Lord. And the Lord responds, he will. He's going to come. Saul is. Verse 12. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Calah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said they will. Let's reflect on this for a moment. You remember last week what was going on in, in our text in, in Calah? They were being attacked by the Philistines. And, and who went to save them? David. And his men. And now he's asking, are they going to give me up? The people that I risked my men and my life for, are they going to give me up? They will. 
And is Saul coming for me? He is. This is the actual revealed will of God coming to Saul through prayer, through the ministry of the priest, through the ephod, and they would use uh, this urim and thummim, this way of of discerning God's uh, will and direction in their lives. And, and, and so he, he learns, yeah, they're going to give me up. And, and he's got to leave. He has got to get out of there. So truth number two here is directly engage God in prayer when you need direction. David has directly engaged the Lord in knowing what to do as he heard that, that Saul is coming and his life is once again in danger. He has prayed and he sought the Lord and he has given very specific guidance here. So this brings up the question, how does the Christ follower discover direction from the Lord? We don't have a priesthood. We don't have this, uh, uh, this ephod or this breastplate that the priest would wear with the urim and thummim and prayer and, and there would be direction given through the priest. We, we don't have any of that. How do we get direction and guidance from the Lord? Well, one answer is, is we pray, just as what happened here. But in my own experience, I don't often, I don't know about you, but I don't often get something that I can put in quotes <laughs> like he has here, where God speaks through a vision or a dream in some specific way. I believe God can do that today, but it's in my life, my testimony to you is, is he has not, I'm not sure that he's ever done that in my life in the way I would put it in quotes here for direction. So we pray and we seek his face and we ask for guidance, but we may not get absolute specific direction from him like this. In fact, generally speaking, I would say we don't. And so one of the things that becomes so important to us is to actually look at God's word for direction in our lives. And as I say that, you might immediately think there's not a lot of specificity for direction in God's word. And and in in a sense, that is true. And so one of the things that we need to understand as New Testament believers is that God has given us tremendous liberty and freedom with our lives. Tremendous liberty and freedom about what he would have us do. And so some things are really not that big of a deal. Have I mentioned to you guys I like mountain biking? Have I mentioned that before? If I'm trying to decide on my next bike or what color it should be or whether I should buy this bike or or whether I should buy that bike, uh, there's a lot of liberty in, in, in these kinds of things. And, and, and we, we don't necessarily need a word from the Lord from all things. He's given us liberty. We pray. We, we talk to friends. We, we, we do everything unto him and enjoy the liberty that we have. But the scripture does give us guidance in a whole variety of ways that can help us as we seek direction in our own lives. Look with me here on the screen at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Another way 
to render that in English, the the well-known commentator C.K. Barrett, he puts it this way, you must not get into a double harness with unbelievers. If I paraphrase that, he's saying, you need to be very careful of very close relationships with unbelievers. So this is the kind of truth that can help us make decisions, whether it's involving business or involving a relationship or whatever it is. You know, one of the things, I don't know if I'll ever uh, get to this, but I've done small sections of this, but you maybe have heard of the John Muir Trail. Have any of you heard of this trail? I've done part of it. Maybe you've done part of it. It starts there in Yosemite Valley. And uh, this trail goes to Mount Whitney. I think it's about 211 miles. And I've seen a lot of that um, over the years here and there, little snippets of it. But it is, you know, maybe, maybe some of, uh, it's at near the top of the list of the most beautiful places in our planet. And to, to hike that 211 miles, um, I would not want to do that alone. I would want to do that with someone. And you know, this is, uh, the, there are many applications, only one interpretation of a text, but there are many applications. F- my application, if I were to spend uh, weeks on uh, backpacking out in that country, I would want to do that journey with a believer, with someone who knows the Lord, with someone who I'm going to be, uh, you know, getting going to bed under the stars, uh, setting up a tent with, getting up in the morning and, and heating up water and, and, and getting some food together and, and spending all of this time with, that is going to be a very intimate experience to spend 211 miles in, in, in weeks or days and days traveling with someone. You must not get into a double harness with unbelievers. I'm trying to show just one way that God's word can help us to make to, to find direction and leading from him. Things are different, but things are the same as we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, and things that are the same is that we seek him and we pray, and we also look to others to help us, people that we trust, godly people to give us wisdom, because we may not get a, a vision or a dream or some kind of audible voice that we can put in quotes. That is what David got here. So this is uh, trust, trust him for uh, your protection and your for, uh, direction. That's verses 13 and 14. I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Directly engage God in prayer when you need direction. That's verses 9 through 12. Well, let's jump ahead now that I've already got it on here and look at verses 13 and 14. You guys tracking with me so far? All right, so let's look at 13 and 14. So David and his men, so, so, so he gets this news from the Lord. This is what's going to happen. He's coming, and yeah, they're going to give you over. The people that you've just saved, the town of Calah, they're going to hand you over to the, to the bad guy here. So verse 13. So David and his men, about 600 in number, his, his forces have increased since they were 400, left Calah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he did not go there. So he ends up not going because his intel's good. He knows David has left. Verse 14, David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. And I have God circled in my Bible here in verse 14. 
God is the subject, essentially, of every verse of Scripture. And here it is especially true that the providence of God is protecting David. So he doesn't tell David exactly where to go, just like in your life and my life. We don't often know what exactly where to go, whether it's job-wise or whether it's location-wise or it's living-wise or whatever the situation is. That is the situation here. David doesn't know exactly where to go. He knows he needs to leave Keilah. He's done that. But day after day, as Saul is searching for him, God did not give him to his hands. So you and I can trust him. We can trust God for protecting us and for giving us direction in life. So that's verses 13 and 14. Let's move ahead now to verses 15 through 18. While David was at Horash in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. This is just relentless. The, 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 the movie, if this is a movie, we're just, he just keeps coming, he just keeps coming, he just keeps coming. Verse 16, And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant. This is the third time the text has told us, uh, told, us, uh, told us about this covenant between Jonathan and David. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. I want you to see a couple things in this text. First of all, I have circled what Jonathan has said to David, don't be afraid. Implication, David is afraid. <laughs> um, you and I in life are often afraid. And we need to be encouraged. And we need to be affirmed. And this relationship, this, this beautiful friendship has, has been reunited here for these couple verses. And this is the last time we see David and Jonathan together. And, and Jonathan says to David, don't be afraid. Now, if you've got your Bibles open, look back at the last verse of chapter 22. You might remember that's when the one priest survived, Abiathar. And David I mean, imagine seeing all of your colleagues, all of your town slaughtered by, by evil, oppressing people. That's what Abiathar went through. And so in verse 23 of 22, chapter 22, David says, stay with me, don't be afraid. So God gives David the words of encouragement to Abiathar, don't be afraid. And now here, David's on the receiving end of that. And in God's providence, he, arranged, he arranges for these two friends to be together don't be afraid. This is what he needed to hear. He needed to hear truth from a friend, from a friend who knows and loves God deeply. So I want to take a moment here again. We've hit this several times some weeks ago when we had more details about David and Jonathan's relationship. But uh, truth number four out of today's passage for us is that God has provided you with the opportunity I'm talking about you personally and me personally. God has provided each of us with the opportunity to have intimate, same-gender Christian fellowship. David is married. He's married crazily to, to the man who's trying to kill him's daughter, right? You remember that? The person that he's getting encouragement from here is not his wife. It is from his brother, from his close friend. 
God wants us to see, not just here, but in these latter chapters of 1 Samuel, the huge importance of man-on-man, of woman-on-woman friendship, and that we would make room for this in our lives. It is huge for David to hear, not from just anyone, but from his close friend who who was willing to risk his life for him and lay down his life for him. They've spent hours and hours together. They've they've been in battle together. They've done all these things to each other, with, with each other. They have shared their hearts with each other. They know each other deeply. To hear it from him, this is huge. And so God wants you to have a relationship like that. So how does that come about? Well, it's not very common, and that's why I'm talking about it right now. So in a sense, what I'm saying right now, what I'm, if you don't have a, a, a David and Jonathan, a, a Ruth and Naomi kind of relationship with another believer where you can share those, those, those deep things that you don't share w- w- with, with everyone, even, even believers that you're close to, that you might only share with this person, and, and they know you at a level that no one else does, I'm, I'm asking right now that you would have a longing for that kind of a friendship. And, and God can do that in a variety of ways. One of the ways I would suggest, if you're sitting there, yeah, I'm not, I would like that, but I don't know how that would come about is to get involved in one of our small groups or our men's Bible study or our women's Bible study and be praying, if you don't have this, that the Lord would lead you into a relationship like that. If that isn't for you, you could even write on your prayer card, will you help me write to the elders? We will pray for you. Will you help me find a person like this? And we have done that. And we can do that. I am suggesting that the Bible is teaching that it is God's will for us to have these kinds of friendships. We've talked about this before, and I, so I'm not going to dwell on it a whole lot, but I want to mention one friendship that I've been able to see that's just beautiful, and I ask their permission um, to share this. Gretchen and, and Kaylee right over here. Would you two raise your hands? Or we're kind of raising hands. They're right over here. College friends, both of whom love Jesus. One of them is married, one of them is not. When we finish college, we often move to, to where we get a job or to graduate school or to whatever, all these, all these different things. I'm talking about them right now because Kaylee is here because of her friendship with Gretchen, who's married. That's why she moved here. Because of their friendship. They have an uncommon friendship like David and Jonathan here. And it has been such a blessing for me to see that. And I'm praying, regardless of your age, that you would long for that kind of friendship. That you would pray for that kind of friendship. And we want, if you would have us, to help you find that kind of friendship. God has provided the opportunity for intimate, intimate, same gender, Christian fellowship. Make room for this in your life. Pray for this. This is part of how we live the Christian life and also how we find and discern God's leading and direction for our lives. So that's verses 15 through 18. Let's come back to our text here and look at 19 through 26. 
you still with me? We have a long text here, but we're, gonna, we're almost done. 19 through 26. So, so David is encouraged by his friend. This covenantal friendship, this extraordinary intimate friendship. And then verse 19. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us? So this is where David has ended up. He's, he's among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hills of Hakilah, south of Jeshimon. Now, O king, come down whenever it pleases you to do so. We will be responsible for handing him over to the king. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Okay, that, that, did, you, did you hear what that's saying? The Lord bless you. This is disgusting, what verse 21 is saying. This is not a man who is in relationship, in fellowship with the Lord. He, he's saying, the Lord bless you. For, to, to paraphrase here, the Lord bless you for handing over God's anointed to me so I can kill him and I can be at the center of my life and retain the power that I want. So be careful when you hear someone saying, the Lord bless you. This is what Saul is saying, the Lord bless you for your concern for me. Then he says, go and make further preparations or make sure once more, find out where David usually goes and who has, who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Saul is the one who's actually very crafty. David is just trying to survive here. Verse 23, find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you if he is in the area. I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon, in the, in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began to search and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. So this is where the commercial break, if the movie had commercials, would go to right here. Like, boom, he's, he's right on top of him. He's finally got the intelligence. They're right next to him. He's about to take him out, and, and, and we go to a commercial break. Before we get to the ending, you probably know the ending, but before we get to the ending, pretending like we don't know the ending here, what God would have us to see in verses 19 through 26 is this. God is bigger than any betrayal you've experienced. David has been betrayed by Calah, the town he's just saved. Now he's betrayed. These are Israelites. These are his people. Now he's been betrayed been betrayed by the Ziphites, by, by this other tribe. This is really painful. This is really painful. And what does David do? Uh, David seeks the Lord again. And very briefly, I want to read to you from Psalm 54. One of the things we've learned from these latter chapters of 1 Samuel is that we can read how David sought the Lord in various psalms. Psalm 54, the title is to the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Paraphrase, this is the psalm that David prayed. These are the, this is the song. The, the psalms are prayers put to music so that you can remember them and pray them when you're lying in bed at night and, and at all times. That's what these psalms are. And here's how David prayed. I'm just going to read two verses of it. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. 
in the midst of this betrayal, he's praying and longing to believe that God's going to help him and is going to uphold him just as he has in, in, in all of the other pursuits that Saul has been after him. He will return evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. I think we can pray verse 5. What is going on in verse 5 is David, I think, knows it is not his responsibility to bring retribution or justice to Kalah or to the Ziphites. He's saying, in your faithfulness, God, put an end to them. But he's being honest in his prayer. He's saying, I've been betrayed. I want want an end to Saul. I want an end to those who betrayed me. Please return and, and, and do your work of justice to my enemies. So we see how David responds. And God is bigger than any betrayal that you have experienced. Now, I want to bring up, I do this quite frequently, when you're preaching a text like this, it can come across, well, if I pray, if I pray Psalm 54, if I put God first, if I'm not self-focused, if I have believers following me, then, then everything's going to turn out right, and, and the bad guy's not going to get me. That's not actually true. So I often bring up a, a, a man in Scripture who, who is just exemplary, and, and he loses his head. You remember who I'm talking about? John the Baptist. So the Lord was with John the Baptist. And in God's providence, he allows his life to be taken out. But in his providence, as David seeks him here, what does God do? He's bigger than any betrayal you've experienced. Let's finish up today and look at these last few verses. We're in the middle of verse 26, and we'll see what God does. So as the, Saul and his forces are right on top of David and his men. And Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, come quickly. The Philistines are raiding the land. So there's some other place and the Philistines are attacking. Verse 28, then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah, Hamalekthach. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Who sent this messenger to Saul that says, come quickly? The Lord did. God's providence, God's working out things that we can't plan or imagine. God's providence is there for your good. And you can trust him. God's rescue here has nothing to do with David. That's overstatement, but it essentially has nothing to do with David and has everything to do with God. God sends this person and rescues David by sending Saul and his men away. And so then he ends up in this area in Getty. Some of you have been there. Uh, Keith and Janet Goodrich were just there recently. It is this oasis, this beautiful place, is that we get introduced to at the end of this chapter where God has rescued him. And the takeaway for for us at the end of this chapter is that God will be with you. I want to be biblical and say the story may or may not have a beautiful, wonderful, happy ending. But God will be with you and he will see you through and he is working these things for good and for his kingdom.
to be advanced. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have given David guidance and strength. I'm thinking right now especially of his friendship with Jonathan. Lord, I'm thinking especially right now of how he looked to you and prayed to you and trusted you. I'm thinking right now especially about how he didn't have himself at the center of his universe and wrongly interpret events, thinking that they were all happening um, uh, for him or to him or unto him. Lord, you are working your kingdom and, and advancing your kingdom in ways that we don't fully grasp. We need close believers to help us walk the road, the difficult roads that we have in our lives. And we also need a great trust and confidence that you are sufficient to see us through whatever is coming our way. And David has had a lot coming his way. And we see your sufficiency. Help us by your grace to trust you in that. We pray in your name.